All right, welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, Con Ed courses, details can be found on the website, and this podcast can also be found on the website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport, and I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director, Coordinator, and a physiotherapist himself at King Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada. Jared, what's up, man? Not much, man. Excited to be here as always. Hey, he's also the certified, Jared's also a certified strength conditioning specialist and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive lifter himself. So he's walking the walk. And we are extremely excited to welcome to the show Dr. Mike Riemann, who is a faculty member at Duke University, a clinical researcher and educator, and who's done a mountain of research across a wide array of topics in our field, uh, especially in the study of hip impingement, which actually has a, a PhD in newly minted. And I was fortunate enough to meet Mike at Combined Sections meeting last month, and we're honored to have him on the show. So, Mike, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you guys for asking. Oh, it's truly an honor. And can you tell our six listeners a little bit about yourself and what's led you to your research tracks and current interests in the field and ultimately to the pinnacle of your professional career now being on the Clinical Athlete podcast? Yeah, hopefully I don't lose you guys some listeners. Um, so so I, I, I've been, you can tell by my gray hair, I've been around for a while. And so I was a practicing clinician for quite a while and actually a practicing clinician longer than I've been in academia, which um, I, I think is helpful for me. Um, and, and then kind of getting into academia was kind of... Um, Kind of by chance. I mean, they needed somebody to teach a couple of classes, and I did it, and I and, and I enjoyed it, and and then uh, just kind of being on both sides of the fence, so to speak, just kind of led to more questions. And and luckily, being in academia, I had opportunities to investigate some of those kinds of things. And so, um, and then just you know, as as opportunities arose, I I end up uh, starting a PhD. I'm very Late in my career, I would not suggest that if you're going for a PhD, I would suggest doing it much earlier than I did. Um, but, uh, and so it's kind of led me to, I've always had an interest in FAI. And then actually what led me to FAI specifically is I was actually in the Midwest and and I had this patient that had what I thought was impingement, but at that time, the closest surgeon was like nine hours away. And so it was like, do I send this person nine hours away for what I think is going on? And so, uh, so kind of led me to do some some research and found out there was nothing there. And so, that uh, just kind of how it kind of morphed into what where where I am today. So. Would you say that I know you mentioned the late PhD, but would you say that a lot of the work was done? I mean, you had so much research kind of leading up to when you decided to get that. It's like, well, at least I'll just I'll just write a thesis on it. <laughs> You know what, actually, so, so it was interesting is, so I was in the Midwest, and I was teaching in the Midwest, and, and I came, well, we came to Duke in part for me to pursue a PhD, and then I kind of got, so this was like, I didn't really 
do a good job of planning this out. So like I got here and, and pretty much every opportunity at that time was, yeah, you can do that, but you're going to have to go down to 25% teaching and no uh, no benefits and, and enroll in a PhD. And so uh, I have a family, I have two kids, I have a wife, uh, that was not plausible. And so, so I just kind of kept doing what I was doing and, and uh, actually uh, had an opportunity to, to speak in, uh, in Doha, Qatar and, and uh, Christian Thorberg and Per Holmick came up to me and said, you're doing some really good stuff. Why don't you, why don't you just do a PhD? And, and so, um, so that's pretty much how it happened. There you yeah. go. Yeah. And I, I know I had mentioned the work you've done on, on FAI and hip impingement, but you've also had your hand in a fair bit of, of return to play stuff in, in various populations lately. And that's what we wanted to get you on the show for was discussing the current issues we face in regards to return to play, both clinically and in terms of research and creating some high-level evidence to draw from. So in one of your papers, which we'll probably discuss a few on this on this episode, but this one is you're the lead author on, and it's titled uh, Formal Acetabular Impingement Surgery Allows 74% of Athletes to Return to the Same Competitive Level of Sport Participation, but Their Level of Performance Remains Unreported, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. You highlight a lot of issues in terms of return to, re- to sport reporting in this paper. But before that, can you talk a little bit about some of the key elements that define return to sport? In other words, what does a quote-unquote successful return to sport actually mean? Yeah, so that's like the million-dollar question, right? And so I, I think it's I think it's tough because you know, kind of doing some of this research and that kind of stuff, you kind of figure out, you know, part of it is even terminology. What is, you know, what's return to sport, you know, because in some of these studies, and so I've done a few of these now, but some of these people return to sport by definition because now they're on the roster and, you know, they might not even be playing. And so like we did one on Tommy John and, and, you know, does that mean they go back, you know, did they start at double A and now are they at back at double A? And so it's, like it became very frustrating, quite honestly, because especially when we did the Tommy John paper is because we were, well, I mean, are they actually better, right? I mean, are they actually better than they, than they were? And so so it, it kind of gets into the testing component. And, and and I think, you know, and it kind of gets into, you know, there's been a couple of papers out and, and maybe kind of go back. And I'm not sure if this is where you're going, but, um, you know, like Sierra Berge is, is a colleague and we just published a paper in British Journal of Sports Medicine looking at, okay, what are people doing to determine return to sport? And we had like 209 articles in there. And essentially it, what it came down to was time. 85% of the studies that are published show that it was time. And then we thought, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe those are just old studies. And so then we look at them and, and, and there's a nice graph in this paper and it kind of talks about shows over time time is still the major component for determination of whether somebody goes back to sport for an ACL. And this was all on, on ACLs and it's slightly improved, but um, you know, like we're really not even doing, we're not doing a good job of what I tell students is in, in picking low hanging fruit. Like we're not doing a good job of testing strength. We're not doing a good job of testing range of motion, laxity, all these kinds of things. And um, and there's been another study that kind of looked at this too, you know, uh, the, the, uh, Greenberg in JOSPT looked at, you know, they did a survey and they asked PTs, 
what do you guys do on for a return to sport? You know, how do you determine return to sport? And, and I think it was only, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was only like 55% of people actually did something specifically to determine return to sport. They actually did return to sport battery testing. And so, so I think that's the biggest problem is, and, and I know, I know you guys had a webinar on, on uh, psychosocial issues and that's a huge thing. But my point is like, we're not even doing the basics well. And, and I think, and I think, Probably could argue that is the basics. I mean, psychosocial issues are the basics, but like we're not even doing things that we've known for since the '80s. Well, I mean, you know, we're not testing strength well. We're not testing range of motion. We're not. We're, we're not even doing hop testing, and and so I think that's a huge issue. I think the other issue is: Are we actually getting our athletes ready to return to sport? Right, and so you know, there's been some other studies kind of showing that you know, at six months, these people. You know, their limb symmetry indexes and their quad strength and their quad index and their quad force development is really very poor. And so, um, you know, and I, think, I think that comes on rehab. You know, are we getting them ready? Are, you know, are they having too much pain? All those kinds of things. And then I think the last issue is, I mean, are the tests truly discriminatory? I mean, are the hop tests discriminatory? Are the tests that we're doing, are, the, are they the right battery of tests? Because, you know, like... Um, no, well, Matt Itherburn just published a study recently, and, and we published a study on, you know, Justin Lascali published a study and, and showed, and I know there's been some people that have had some issues with the, with the Lascali article, but our, our point in that study was to show that just because somebody passed the test doesn't mean they're ready to go back to sport, right? And so just because they actually meet 90% limb symmetry index doesn't mean they're ready. And so and I know I'm throwing a lot of information out here, but, um, you know, so, so like I went to a, uh, to a sports medicine grand rounds this morning and, and one of my colleagues, um, uh, uh, he, he, he looked at, so he looked at a couple different things. So they looked at, they're looking at six to 18 year old kids and they're looking at what are normative values for hop tests. You know, what are normative values for different kinds of tests? And so, you know, his name is Jack McGill, and he worked with a, a cool surgeon named John Rebo. And so they're trying to look at, they, they work in pediatric ACLs, but they want to get normative values first. And so they're looking at hop tests, they're looking at bossy boss board squats, they're looking at, you know, timed tests, I mean, a whole bunch of different tests. And with the understanding is, okay, what are normative values? You know, how many you know, are people actually meeting 90% limb symmetry index side to side? And they put down this parameter of, okay, if 80% of people are meeting limb symmetry index, we'll consider that a valid thing on these different tests. None of these people, none of those tests were met at 80% value, meaning limb symmetry index was not at 90% or greater on, on 80% uh, on, on any of these individuals on, on these tests. Um, and so it's, I think we think that limb symmetry index is the answer. I think it's actually not the answer. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily have a good good alternative, but if you have two flat tires, I mean, you have two crappy, I mean, you have not very good strength on either leg. I mean, that does that mean that you have a good thing? And so, like, Etherburn looked at, you know, he looked at what he found is absolute strength was kind of what discriminated some people uh, from not tearing a second ACL to those that didn't. And so maybe it's 
you know, are people just really strong and are they really good versus like comparing side to side or, you know, there's other things that people look at, like, you know, measuring strength before they have surgery and then comparing that, you know, like Epic or whatever. But, you know, I, th- you know, I, th- I think we need to recognize that as somebody goes through rehab is they actually lose strength on their good leg, too. And so you know, I think that's why, you know, maybe BFR is a really good thing. You know, using uh, neuromuscular stem is a good thing. I mean, those are, I mean, I think we just need to recognize there's limitations on, on return to sport testing. Well, with that said, so you mentioned the Lascali paper that you're an author on and, you know, according and that the title of that paper is the association between passing return to sport criteria and second ACL injury risk, a systematic review and meta-analysis. I've got it right in front of me, by the way. I don't have these things off the yeah. top of my head. Okay. Just so, so people don't think <laughs> I'm an encyclopedia. Man. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with, with the conclusions of that study, passing return to sport criteria didn't show a significant association with a risk of second ACL injury, but back to the, to the, um, the Peters, no, 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 the, the Berge article, yeah. we're not even, we're using time. It seems like mostly right. as, as a, as a return to sport criteria. So are we even implement, implementing these, this battery of return to sport testing to be able to say that it's not, you know, uh, it's not predictive. No, no, that that's right. And so, I mean, that, you know, that, that's, that's an excellent point is, I mean, it's, you know, are the tests the right test? The problem is we're not even doing the test, right? And, and, and you know, I mean, Greenberg showed that, um, you know, Sierra Berge's study showed that, you know, I mean, the time was the primary issue or primary criteria, which, I mean, you need a certain amount of time too, right? I mean, you you, you want to make sure that somebody is out far enough, and and and, and that's important. And the, the problem with what we found in in that same study is only 13% of the public of the 209 studies showed that people waited nine months or greater. Um, you know, and so you know, whatever 100 months, so 87% of them were were, were returning people back to sport less than nine months and you know if you look at other studies that shows that that's probably not what we need to be doing you know you look at like well you know tim hewitt you know the acl uh rock star i mean he's you know he came out with this paper suggesting maybe we wait two years uh because of ligamentization and nociception and you know i don't think anybody will ever do that but i think he has a good point in that fact that it, it takes time for the, the the knee joint to heal so, so time is very important, and, and we don't want to be, you know, minimize that. But that's that's the low hanging fruit, right? I mean, you got to do other things too. You got to you got to do hop testing, and so it's like you're right. We don't know if those are appropriately valid until we have everybody do them, right? And, and figure out if if those are the. I mean, we need to have them, you know, people do them and figure out okay, yeah, they're the criteria. They're they're not the criteria. And just for the listeners, the Berge article, that which you're an author on as well, is titled, Which Criteria Are Used to Clear Patients to Return to Sport After Primary ACL Reconstruction and Scoping Review? And your point, when you say time was the most common criteria, that means that a lot of clinicians were simply using the time after surgery to determine if the athlete is ready to go back. And then you take that point even further and say, and a lot of them are going back before nine months. So not only are they not really using 
uh, a battery of testing, they're probably going back too early anyway. And also not determining whether they're strong enough or rate of force is, is there and, you know, these types of things. So not, not great. No, no. I mean, it's, you know, it's, yeah, we, you know, we were actually, well, I was pretty surprised. I mean, I, I kind of suspected, suspected some of that. I knew it was going to be kind of all over the place, you know, so like not everybody uses the same limb symmetry index. Some people use manual muscle testing. Some, I mean, I knew that kind of stuff was going to happen, but I was actually quite surprised that time was the primary variable and in that it was less than nine months. And so, um, I mean, that was, yeah, it's, um, I mean, like maybe I'm spoiled where I'm at, but that's, that's not the norm in, um, but it's, you know, we definitely need to improve, I think. So going back to, we kind of have two things going on here. It's reporting return to sport and what we're actually doing clinically as testing for return to sport. We go back to your hip paper. You talk about things that we should be looking at in returns to in returns in terms of reporting return to sport. So return to sport as a general concept is pretty vague. And in a lot of papers, return to sport is synonymous with the return to prior level. It's synonymous with whatever performance. It's just simply return to sport. Did they get back to being on the team or being at the level or, or in, in any capacity, really? But it, it, in your papers, in the hip paper and the Tommy John's paper, you guys distinguish between return to sport in any capacity, returning to pre-level, to pre-level, pre-injury level of sport, and also the importance of determining if their performance was back to pre-injury level or not. So those are three things to look at that a lot of return to sport data is not really looking at. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of making those distinctions as we try to, you know, get better at this whole thing? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is difficult because so, um, so Scott Peters, it was the lead author on, on the Tommy John one. And, and, and he actually, um, he works in the major league baseball. And, and so it's, it is very helpful to have him on this paper because he goes, Okay, here's what's important to me. I mean, working in in in, in baseball, I mean, I, I need to know can they perform. And so, like I, as we're going through them, I mean, you look at the papers on the surface, and like the majority of them show that 90% of people after a Tommy John or an FAI surgery get back to the sport, but it doesn't tell you are they performing at the same level. You know, so are they at AAA, AA, single A? But then they actually, even more importantly, is, you know, now what is their ERA? What is their, you know, uh, wins, you know, war, you know, wins above replacement? You know, what is their, you know, are they scoring the same number of goals? Are they, I mean, all those kinds of things. Because that's, that's honestly, that's why the athlete has the surgery, right? I mean, it's just to get rid of the pain, but also so that they can get back to the sport and participate. And, and it, it was, it was very bad. Well, it, it was very poorly reported. In, in the FAI paper because, I mean, it, to be fair and to be honest, FAI is kind of the new kid on the block, right? And so it hasn't, I mean, well, actually it's been around since the 20s, um, but it hasn't been really investigated very thoroughly uh, until here recently. And so, um, and so, 
in fairness, I mean, some of the, I mean, we're kind of figuring out how to report it, how to, how to do all this kind of stuff. Um, but we have good example. I mean, we, we need to follow what's done in the ACL and other kinds of things. So, so, so the performance level in, in FAI was hardly ever reported. I mean, it was only reported in a few articles and, and what was reported was actually either the same or slightly worse. Um, what was reported in the Tommy John papers was, was better. Um, what we had a hard time figuring out, though, was it's kind of what I mentioned before is, you know, did they leave a double or did, you know, were they in double A when they had surgery and did they go back to double A? So that was that was very hard to figure out. And and then but there was actually some performance statistics and, and it kind of talks in there. I think, you know, ERA was a little bit worse. Um, they didn't pitch as many innings and that kind of stuff, which. You know, part of our reason for wanting to do that paper is because if you look at, you know, social media and the media is, I mean, it's, it's, you know, like kids are having their Tommy John replaced because they think they can throw faster, you know? I mean, so it's like, there's actually people that are talking about doing it prophylactically and we said, what is going on? So, um, so we wanted to kind of point out that that's not always the case. And so, um, and in that kind of, you know, we, we were probably a little bit biased going into it. We were hoping that it showed that and, 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 and to our bias that did show that, you know, they don't get back to, you know, if you look at the majority of studies, Tommy John, FAI, and ACL, you almost always see 90 percentile is kind of what, you know, everybody goes back to the sport. And, but if you look at actually how, you know, what do they go back to the same previous level prior to surgery? It's almost in the 70 percentiles, uh, except for Claire Arden showed about 55 percentile in ACL. So it's very rare that people go back and perform at the same level that they were prior to their injury and, and their surgery. Well, a direct rebuttal to the, oh, I'll pitch faster if I get Tommy John surgery was that velocity was down. It seemed like in all, yeah, yeah in, all the th- in all three of the studies, I think that even that looked at that, pitching velocity was down. ERA was up in two out of the three. So it, to your point, it doesn't seem like it's good. Um, getting right. them back to the, it gets them back to sport, but again, now level two, or we talk about that return to sport in any capacity, return to pre-level. Let's, what about a college kid? Pre-level is college. You can't go back to high school. So right. is that, does that even make it more important to get that performance-based return to sport outcome. Yeah, you know, and actually that's where we struggle the most. And, 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 and we, um, so, so, you know, kind of what we decided to do is to kind of like, if we didn't know where they went, like, if you know, cause you know, if they go from high school to college, well, you know, they're at a higher level, but are, you know, are they performing? So we kind of like try to minimize those, those people, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things where if you're in high school and, and you have Tommy John so that you can pitch in college, you know, how, I mean, there's, there's so many variables, right? There's so many things that are uncontrollable. And, and, and in fairness to the people that are reporting this is like, those are, those are confounding variables, right? And, 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 and you can't, like, if somebody has Tommy John as a junior, you can't follow them out for five years and figure out if they're going to return to the same level because they started in high school. Right. And so, um, and so that does make it difficult. And, and, and to some degree, this is always going to be an issue, even if you do 
you know, good reporting on, on, on these post-surgical kinds of things. And so, um, I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. And there's so many variables that are difficult to control. And I mean, somebody, somebody might start, you know, you know, other studies have shown that the, the higher velocities are kind of like risk factors for Tommy John. Maybe, maybe they change to a different type of a pitch. Right. And so then, so are they at the same level? I mean, so there's, that, that's where we kind of started going getting in the weeds and we said, okay, we got to get out of this because it's, it was so messy. And, but that's, that's the nature of it. And so, um, yeah, that, those are, those are, those are hard things to control. And, 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 and those are things that the people that are reporting this should not be penalized for. So. Yeah, totally. The, what was interesting, I think in one in the hip paper was a quarter a quarter of the athletes after uh, hip you know, is, is a re, like a reconstruction or, or any, uh, arthroscopy open surgery for for FAI. A quarter of them did not return to pre-level, but did report largely satisfaction and Im- improvement with patient reported outcomes. You guys had some interesting thoughts as to why. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, isn't that fascinating? I mean, that that kind of stuff just fascinates me, and, and you know, and it's 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 hard to say why, but it's um, you know, and maybe my bias. So, like, we all have bias, right? And so, I think part of my bias is I think some of it is expectation. I think some of it is people. Um, you know, I mean, we're doing an expectation trial right now, and so it's like I will, t- and we're and we're doing it on FAI, so we're essentially asking people so. You know, as a result of the surgery, what do you expect to get back to? And they all expect to get back to normal, 100% what they were. And in, in the studies just don't prove that out. And so, so, so it is fascinating in the sense of their pain level had improved, their their satisfaction had improved, but they hadn't gone back to the same level. And so, I mean, what? Why is that? And so, you know, I mean, so do they? Do they kind of get satisfied and say, okay, this is probably as good as it's going to get. I'm probably, you know, this is probably where I'm at. Um, I'm back to sport where I wasn't playing sport before. So, uh, you know, do they actually lower their expectations? And so I, I think that is some of it. And I think that's, I think that leads to a question is, do we need to start addressing that, you know, as we have them go through rehab and, and probably better for the surgeon is to say, you know, well, just so you know, you know, that 74% of people or, or whatever it ends up being at that point is, and that's a whole other discussion and kind of thing, but it's, that's something I always struggle with, with patients is you know, they're going in and they're expecting to go back to sport. And when they, when they feel out like that expectation score and it's like a hundred percent is like, oh man, you know, what do I, what do I do with this information? Well, now they'll, apparently they'll, ex- their expectations will change and they won't care if they're at a hundred percent, 175% will be a hundred percent. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, maybe, maybe it's just one of those where, you know, it's, you know, it's, if you think about it, it's probably a few weeks before their surgery. Um, they have their surgery. Now they're six, nine months down the road. And in like our expectations on in life and those kinds of things change over time. And so maybe it's simply that. Well, especially if you're a college kid, a lot happens in a year. That's six to nine right. months, six to 12 months. You, maybe you grow up, you find different interests, you get married, you, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's it's really interesting. The human element just confounds everything. It just makes it so complicated. 
it's it's so fascinating and it's just like one of those where it's like you know i i did this talk and, and well it was it was a talk right right after my defense and 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 it was it essentially kind of got to the point of you know does it do any good to do all these tests and those kind of stuff versus like looking at things like prognosis and, and actually contextual factors in, in the makeup of the patient, you know, and because it's like, I think that is, is hugely important on prognosis. And we know from other studies, and I know that's not what we're talking about today, but like depression, you know, expectation, mental health, you know, comorbidities, those all, those all worsen after, after FAI surgery. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, like I've, I've tweeted and stuff before. I mean, you got to treat the patient, not the, not the presentation. So. Speaking of the return to sport criteria, you know, we've got the, we've got our battery of tests with ACLs. We've already kind of talked about how it's not perfect and maybe not as predictive as we'd like it to be, but it's certainly better than, than nothing. Speaking of nothing in your hip paper, in regards to return to sport criteria reporting, zero of the studies in your review actually actually reported what criteria they used to determine if the athlete was ready to return to sport after hip surgery. So my question to you is, are we not reporting these return to sport criteria because we really don't have any established the way that we do for ACL? Or is that just a lazy oversight? What's going on with that? Yeah, I think it's probably multifactorial, honestly. I mean, it's so it's, I think it's both of those things that, well, I don't know, if, I don't think laziness, but um, I, I do think that we don't have, we we do not have published standards for, um, for hip like we do for ACL. And so, um, I mean, if you look at, um, there's been a couple of studies on this that kind of show if you look at um, post-operative protocols, and they're all over the place uh, for FAI and labral. And, and um, I remember getting ready to publish another paper on it. I mean, it's, it's terrible, quite honestly. And so, um, which, which is difficult because it doesn't give a clinician guidance on what to do for, for those, kinds of, those kinds of things. And so, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, return to sport testing is um is an issue for for fai and labral and in hip in general because um nobody's really i mean people are working on it and so i mean it, you know part of it's new um part of it is not laziness and reporting it part of it is probably um maybe not thinking it's important to report or, or, or in, in in fairness too some journals limit what you can report um but that's why there's things called appendices and so um, those are online kinds of things where, I mean, you can put it in there, but it's, yeah, we, we don't do a good job of reporting it. And it's part of it is because it's all over the place. And, and part of it is, is because the, the reporting uh, is not thought to be important and or journals kind of limit it. Or, or, I mean, there's probably multi, multiple reasons. Is that kind of a disconnect between research and clinical practice? Because as a, as a clinician... Yeah, that's kind of what your what your eyes is starting to go to, you know, and it's like, well, what do I actually do with this person when they're in front of me to to determine whether they go back or not? It's tough. No, it is. I mean, that's a that's an honestly a, a fair point. And, and so like I get caught up myself and in and, and, like I still practice. Uh, I still practice every week and, and 
uh, teach and research and, 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 but I do sometimes catch myself like, okay, I'm in the clinic. I kind of think, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's hard to think about all of those things at one time. And so like when I'm doing research, I'm, I'm trying to ask good research questions, but then it's like, like I like having clinicians on my studies because they'll say, well, well, I mean, just exactly what you said is, well, what do I do with that information? Right. And, and so it's like, even though I'm a clinician, it's like, I'm not a pri- primarily a clinician and, and, I, and I have research questions and I have questions that I'm trying to answer from a research and statistical standpoint versus like, oh yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. I don't actually know what you do with that information. Right. And so um, I do, I do think there's a disconnect and I think that there's always going to be somewhat of a natural disconnect. Um but there are a lot of good researchers that are good at, at doing that very well. And, 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 and I think that's a good reason to have clinician research teams, which you're starting to see more and more of. And, and I think that's hugely important. Well, I think, I think Mike, that uh, your point there about how there, there likely will be or continue to be a disconnect um, on, on either side probably works the other way around too, where just in, in my reasonably limited experience, just having practiced around four or so years now. Um, I've come across a number of clinicians who just kind of seem very entrenched in what they do. And like, this is, you know, what seems to work. And I saw it listed here or or this recommendation. So I'm going to be doing it. I think that a lot of us would probably benefit from trying to adopt the, some of the mental processes of a researcher to, to ask questions about what we know and how we know it. Where did the information come from? What were the limitations of it? So therefore, how much, how much of this can we take, and, and how can we apply it? And how confidently can we apply it? You know, what what questions still exist, um, and what do we need to be careful about as we um, work with patients, and and what we or and as we explain narratives to them. Um, so I, I think that yeah, a lot of us could benefit from that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's tough though, right? Because I mean, it's like when I'm you know. Well, I have a great job in the clinic. I don't have to do any documentation. I don't really want to say too much about that. I don't want to make too many people mad. But, <laughs> um, but it's like when I'm when I'm in the. I mean, it's like you have a full day and you have document. I mean, it's like you're busy, right? And and, and it's hard. And and it's. I mean, I, like I did that for ten, you know, ten, twelve years, and and it's it, it's not necessarily a grind. I mean, I always still enjoy it. But it's like, I mean, you're focused on getting your notes done so that you're not, you know, up at eight o'clock at night and, and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we do. A, so it's and we haven't been always good at it, but we do a good job here, especially at our sports clinic where, um, you know, Jack McGill, who I was talking about before on PEDS ACLs is he's a clinician and and he's and he's working to he, he wants to, you know, he's doing research and he's looking to do a PhD and that kind of stuff. But you know, he's on a team. He's on a team with a researcher, with a physician, um, two researchers. And so it's like, like you got to have a team. There's no way. Um, but hopefully that team is multifaceted, right? Where it's you have clinician input, you have research input, you have stats input. Like you got to have a statistician on. I mean, I mean, to understand, no, you can't do that and that kind of stuff. And so but he also has a little bit of his time carved out for that. Right. And, and, and it's so it's I mean, there's productivity standards and there's all kinds. I mean, so it's like when I do my research, it's it's primarily on my own time. And at some point, I'm probably going to get tired of doing that. Right. And so, um, I mean, it's it's difficult as a clinician. I mean, it's it's just there's so many things and, and, it, and it's hard. But, you know, 
I will tell you that researchers typically want clinicians to come to them with questions mm-hmm. uh, because if nothing else, they can collect the data for them, right? And so then that's a good way to get started. And that's a good way to get in there. And, and, and you know, if you are a clinician, you know, go talk to somebody that's doing research and, and just, you know, see how that, you know, how they think. And, and then, and then they, it's good for the researcher too, because it's like, you know, I have these questions, but like none of these are clinically applicable. Right. And so, I mean, I think it, it, I think it's good to have that symbiotic relationship between clinicians and researchers. Well, definitely. And one more thing to throw on there, just on top of the, the time constraints and logistical considerations for clinicians, you also ultimately have a person in front of you saying, this is my problem. What do I do about it? You know, or what's causing it. And if, if you want to give perhaps an accurate, but ultimately unsexy answer of, well, we don't really know, but this is what we're thinking. That's probably not what the patient was ultimately hoping for. They're wanting a more confident vote of this is the, or this is what we do. And here's how long it's going to take um, and moving forward. But it, it can be tough to try to uh, uphold, you know, a standard for accuracy while also trying to meet the patient expectations and still create a confident or put forth a confident game plan to the best of your ability, you know, provided that everything you know, is within your scope and you're able to do that. That's always one of the hardest conversations. I mean, it's like, you know, you know, the evidence isn't great for this or whatever. I mean, we don't know. Um, I think over time you learn how to say that better, but I mean, it's like, I still mess up on that. Right. And so, um, you know, I think, I think it's one of those things where you kind of, I think over time, I don't know if you can necessarily get better or you understand that it's not always going to be a win, right? And so maybe you just kind of understand that, um, you know, this is going to, versus like trying to avoid it altogether and saying, mm-hmm. yes, this is the thing to do. And, and um, I, I do think patients overall in general appreciate honesty. Um, and and part, of do, part of that is figuring out how to, how to speak that message, um, and, it's, and it's different for everybody. Mike, you mentioned uh, talking about prognostic factors maybe being more beneficial than diagnostic factors. And with the hip specifically, do you think that we, part of this is that we just don't have a great diagnostic framework for FAI impingement, I've seen the occurrence of this surgery just kind of blow up over the past 10 years. And it's almost like, all right, we're doing this procedure now. And then we're like, okay, whoa, let's figure out how to test for this. Or let's figure out some criteria to rehab because apparently it's going to be happening more and more. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, yeah, I've written a couple of papers on this. And, and I think the surgeons think I'm anti-surgery. And then I'm not anti-surgery. I just think it's overutilized to some degree. And so, um, I mean, that's the nature of the beast. So, I mean, science or practice is always going to be ahead of science, right? I mean, so you're always going to see where utilization of clinical practice is 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 ahead of where science is. Um, it's but it's interesting is we've never been this far ahead. And, and I mean, if you if you look at the rate of FAI surgery uptake, um, it's it's 2,500% increase over like a seven-year period from, I think, 2006 to 2013. So, I mean, I don't know if those numbers are exact, but that's pretty close. And so, like, we've never seen this amount of growth. With growth comes painful problems, right, and, 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 and those kinds of things. And, and um, you know, even when I, when I defended my thesis, I don't know if I should say this, um, 
Uh, when I defended my thesis, I, I, I pretty strongly said, yeah, you know, Fader's test example is, is a good screening test. It is not a good screening test. I mean, because if, if you look at and how, so what's nice about it is, is it does decrease probability by 34%, but the confidence interval of that is anywhere from 5% to 95%. So essentially is they could, I mean, it, you know, I want to don't want to get into sensitivity and specificity, but it, like your your odds could be worse as, as a result of that. And, and you know, and part of the issue is it's done in 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 settings of high probability and that kind of stuff. But if you work in a surgeon's office, you you might as well not even do the test because it, it's not really gonna. I mean, it can maybe help exclude some other kinds of things. But yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the nature of it. Um, you know, I do think. Yeah, I, I think we can improve on our diagnostic accuracy studies, but you know, I, I do think prognosis is important because, you know, like if you look at the shoulder, you look at other areas that have been done for a period of time, there aren't that really very many good tests that I would hang my hat on. Um, and, and, and so it's like maybe we need to look at prognostic factors instead of, you know, like special tests, which are typically not very special. So. They're not allowed to take a PhD away from you, are are they? <laughs> All right, I got one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did say that I did say that on there, in there, but in in, in kind of explain that. So, but it's um, uh, I was hesitant. I mean, that's what the that's what the evidence shows, right? And and so um, I just had to make sure I had a good defense for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, really, just these these tests clinically. Somebody comes in with hip pain. As a clinician, you're you already know that hip hurts. You're kind of biased to just, you know, hey, you know, you jam that hip in a in that position. Hey, you know, how does that feel? And you're already kind of like nodding your head. Like, oh, yeah, that hurts probably, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, you can't, yeah, it's really hard to control for that stuff. Um, yeah, and what are you impinging, right? Is it soft tissue? Is it bone? I mean, yeah, who knows? Yeah. Totally. And uh, And what's discomfort for somebody is, you know, their pain versus somebody else's is just like, eh, it's a feeling, you know, that, that whole right. thing too. When you talk right. about prognostic factors, let's say ACL, just because of those return to sport criteria, a little bit more defined prognostic factors would be something separate from a, let's say a battery of tests in the very, very beginning. Yeah. So, well, so like a good example, maybe, well, maybe an example in the ACL would be you know, like what the Delaware group is doing, looking at copers versus non-copers. And, and so looking at, okay, who, who probably needs surgery. So like as, as a clinician and a researcher, like when a patient comes into me with FAIs, I, I, you know, I want to try to figure out is, okay, what's the odds of this person avoiding surgery? Right. And, and because, or, um, well, part of the problem is they come in, they expect to have surgery. So that's part of the issue that maybe goes into this prognostic factor thing. But um, like we know, we, we've already done some of the work, right? And we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, look at it like what Delaware has done. And, you know, there's certain people that can can cope with an, without an ACL. You know, they probably can't do transverse plane uh, kinds of things. They're probably a little bit older. I mean, some of those kinds of variables. And so... Um, and, and, and I honestly think that, because well, because I know that some people are looking at this, like you're going to start seeing more of this kind of stuff, you know, in, in other areas of the body and kind of looking at, okay, you know, this patient comes in, you know, are they, 
are they not are they a surgical candidate? You know, it's like, well, if you look at meniscectomies, I mean, we know that if they have degenerative meniscus tears, they're probably not as good a surgical candidate as if they have mechanical symptoms. If they have locking and catching and that kind of, I mean, that's that's probably a good surgical candidate versus you know somebody with degenerative tear that just kind of hurts and no, you know, kind of insidious onset kind of thing. Lots to lots to do. What's down the pipeline for you? Are you going to fix all this? <laughs> um, well, I want to try to contribute, but um, I would like to look at some of those prognostic kinds of things. And so, um, but that's, unfortunately, that's probably going to take a while. But um, yeah, I mean, looking at that kind of stuff and, you know, it's in, in maybe the the bigger kind of thing is kind of look at the expectation kind of thing and just seeing if, is that something that we can 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 try to address or not? And you've got that coming down, you said for the hip. Potentially, yeah, we're, right? we're looking at for yeah, we're looking at it for the hip. The problem is we're having a hard time getting people to enroll um, um, because well, you know, I mean, imagine you were this. I mean, I I think I would do the same thing. Is if I saw my MRI and I saw my X-ray and I saw a bone that was larger than and reported as normal, uh, I was larger than my other side, and I saw a, a tear in my labrum, I'm going to probably ask, why, why am I going to PT? And it hurts, yeah, and it hurts right there. Right. And, and I mean, that's that's how subacromial decompression started, right? They saw the type 3 acromion hanging down, and it's like, well, yeah, it's right below the, you know, it's right above the rotator cuff. Yeah, I can see how that would, you know, tear over time. And so, um, it's tough. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to... Con- well, here's the here's the here's the kicker is like I can't convince them that yeah if you give me six weeks I can guarantee you're going to be better, right? Because we because we don't we can't do that. And in, in, in full disclosure, our non-surgical rehab for FAI is is not very good in, in the literature, um, and so it's it's a tough sell. And and, and it's and, and you know, luckily, I have enough people that are on a waiting list that I can say, well, you, you don't have surgery for six weeks anyway. Why not come to see me? So. And can we expect more, not, you know, not necessarily from you, but perhaps from you or your team or, or others, more specific return to sport criteria and, and batteries of tests for FAI impingement surgeries? Yeah. You know, what was interesting is, um, so uh, over in, in Europe, they, it's called the, the, over in Warwick, Europe, uh, or Warwick, uh, United Kingdom, they, uh, they, had, they had a bunch of us get together and try to come up with um, like a, just even a protocol um, on post-surgery. And, and we had people from all over the world. And, and uh, <laughs> the, the point I'm trying to make is the agreement was low. And, and so, um, but, but we did kind of come up with some general kinds of things and hopefully that kind of gets some traction, that kind of stuff. Um, I think you're, I think the problem there, Quinn, is, is like, if you, if you standardize it, it doesn't allow for individuality, right? And it doesn't allow for, you know, so, okay, patient comes in and they have a lot of comorbidities, um, and well, you know, if you have Adrian Peterson come in versus, uh, um, well, almost anybody else, right? I mean, you know, how, how would you, uh, well, Derek Rose, right? I mean, two elite level athletes, you would think that you could probably rehab them the same, but obviously that was not done, right? And, and for whatever reasons. So I, I think it's going to be tough. I think there's going to be some, 
um, some baseline kind of stuff. But then after that, it's going to, well, and it should be, right? It should be individualized. It should be monitored to the patient. Do you think that's one of the one of the issues with the ACL criteria is that it's too standardized or is that more of an indiv- individualized the way that you're referring to? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, I can only speak from stuff that we've done, right? So the Berge article and that kind of, I, I think, I think, I think what we need to do is we need to have everybody do something, right? And figure out what works, right? I mean, the problem is right now, not everybody's doing something. I mean, we're just waiting on time. And so it's, it's very hard to say, well, hop testing doesn't work or what. I mean, when, when not everybody's doing it, right? And so if we get to the point where everybody's doing it and, and, and we have a baseline, then we can kind of try to discriminate, you know, variables that are discriminatory versus those that are not discriminatory. And so, um, I mean, that was, you know, the biggest point of the Berge article to me is, like guys, we need to we need to at least do this and and figure out what's 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 good and what's what's um, not as good. Uh, Jared and I were actually discussing a little bit briefly before this the Scali article, and it's we could see how some younger you know students, young clinicians, and and across the board would read that and say, "Well, return to sport testing doesn't predict anything. What do we do? You know, what do we what do we even what do we even do?" But I think what you may have just answered that. And my question to you is going to be, you teach students at, at Duke and you present them with all of this uncertainty. They're going to go to the clinic at some point very soon and have this person in front of them. In their mind, they're like, we don't know anything, but they still have to do something. What is your general advice for the young, the new grad, young clinician with all of this uncertainty surrounding these things? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, like we talk about that almost every day. And and so it's uh, like I teach them a, a specific format uh, on the exam. It's what I call the funnel. And it's like interview observation. I mean, different things on, on and essentially is you're trying to go through the ICF model and figure out, okay, what are the impairments? What are the contextual factors? Uh, what are the psychosocial issues? And so what are the things that are um, in this individual person in front of you that you think are contributing to what their issue is, right? And so, um, you know, if you take Adrian Peterson and Derek Rose, is you know, Adrian Peterson just needed, I mean, he needed time, he needed to get stronger, right? And Derek Rose had other issues. And so, um, I think, so the exam is still really, really important because it kind of, it tell, it kind of guides you and, okay, what things do I need to address? You know, and so there's, there's really nice things out there like OSPRO and, and other kinds of, screening things to see if somebody has psychosocial issues. Um, I mean, if they have those issues, then you, then you need to address those. If, if it's somebody that just just needs to get stronger, you'll focus on the strength and the power and all those kinds of things. Part of, part, I mean, that makes it sound very easy though, right? And, and because, but I think part of doing, part of figuring that out is, is having good tools, you know, and making sure you're testing strength, maybe you're testing range of motion, you're, you're doing the test, you're, you're looking at contextual factors, and then you try to design a program based on the things that you found. And, uh, you know, just kind of one quick thing on, on the Scali article is, I mean, there's a, there are some good studies. I mean, Greendom is a very nice study. Christus is a very nice study. Those are really, really good studies. And, and part of the issue in, in full disclosure is, you know, we combined different criteria, so that made it heterogeneous. 
Um, there are still good guidelines, and I would still look at Grindham. I would still look at Christus. Uh, probably mispronouncing that, but I mean, those are still good guidelines to, to do. Um, and and our, the point I wanted to kind of make with that article is just because they pass doesn't mean they're they're a green light. And so that's the, to me, that's the message of that paper. And just because it's not as predictive as we'd like, doesn't mean you don't do the testing. Right. Right. I, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually an excellent point. Yes. And I think in the Berge article, even though you guys aren't necessarily, but you kind of are looking at that. The Berge article has some great um, starting points to to testing, and it can lead people down. You could, there's other references there that you can cross reference and start to learn about yeah. that stuff. So if people have that article, I would highly suggest that they read the, dis- the discussion. Uh, I did not write it; Claire Arden wrote it. It's excellent. Um, you know, Claire Arden is a rock star with ACLs, and, and uh, I mean, she, it's a beautiful discussion. I mean, she talks about you know w- waiting at least nine months. You know, looking at different contextual factors. I mean, it's it's extremely well written. She did a great job. Mike, if when your new stuff starts coming out, I'm going to put you on the spot. Would you be willing to come back on the show and, and talk about it? I would love to. Boom, Jared, you heard that. I did. Everybody heard it. Can't take it back now. Um, where can people find you? So, um, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I might mess these up, but um, I think it's like Raymond. So it's like R-E-I-M-A-N dot Michael. At, uh, actually, I don't even know my handles. Um, well, I'm, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram. Um, my email is Raymond, R-E-I-M-A-N dot Michael at gmail.com. Um, I think it's at Mike Raymond for Instagram and at Mike, I don't honestly don't. Yeah, you got, no, (laughs) I do that. It's, it's, it is Michael Raymond and on Instagram. So it's super easy. And I would say everyone give Instagram, you've been doing a great job with that of, of very succinct posts, putting all the, the main points of an article kind of in the, in the infographic and then, you know, main points in the caption, but then obviously like you're just spurring discussion. And yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's like, I mean, honestly, where it's doing a PhD was so enlightening. I mean, I had two people that were smarter than me about topics and just like, why are you doing that? What do you think? I mean, no, you can't do it. I mean, it's like you, you grow exponentially when you have people ask you those kinds of questions and, and, and not that you need somebody to badger you, but you need to, like, I think I posted on this on one of the Instagram things, but like, you need to be in a, you need to be around people that will, that will ask you and will question you. Right. And I mean, if, if you're around people that believe the same things is there's no chance for growth and, and, and there's, a, and you will probably all have the same kinds of thoughts and you'll, and you'll say, yeah, it's, you know, we're doing the right thing. And, and so the one nice thing about social media is, for me, at least, is it, is it makes me look at, you know, awesome people like Scott Morrison, Rich Willie. I mean, you got, I mean, just like, oh, man, that's, you know, like Scott posted something today was like, you know, his, his quality index thing is like, that's brilliant, right? And, you know, and it's, it's uh, um, like I've been calculating it out. And, and so it's, um, you know, there's a lot of smart people out there. And, 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 it's, and it's good to follow those people and, and ask them questions. And that's coming from a guy who had plenty of skin in the game before you got your 
before you went PhD route and you were getting, and you were kind of back into it. Oh, wow. Getting, yeah, you know, pretty getting, humbling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's really, really great. Mike, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show. Um, we really, really appreciate it. And, uh, we look forward to looking for future work from you. Thanks guys. Loved it.